Are you ready to free the body and free the soul? Join Dr. David, the cutting edge doc, as he guides us on today's journey. Here's Dr. David. Welcome, friends. Welcome to another edition of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. I'm your host, Dr. David, the cutting edge doc. And here on Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul, we do in depth interviews with individuals that are doing cutting edge work in the areas of healing, spirituality, and social transformation. And today, my special guest is Shelly Ray. I heard Shelly Ray speak about six or eight weeks ago on another podcast when she was being interviewed by Rick Archer. And Rick interviews people who have had different levels of radical awakening type experiences. And some of the people who he interviews, I don't have a particular resonance with, but when he interviewed Shelley, I just stopped what I was doing and really entered a profound state of present time consciousness where I felt like I was in the presence of a very present, compassionate, awake, purposeful human being. And it just so happens that she has quite a story to tell. She comes from a background of repeated sexual abuse, severe substance abuse, and uh, has actually made it through to the other side, so to speak. Had very powerful awakening experiences that finally led to a radical awakening several years ago. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the delightful Shelley Ray. Welcome, friends. Dr. David, the Cutting Edge Doc here, and I'm here with Shelley Ray, and I'm very excited about providing this platform to share Shelley Ray with you. I actually found out about Shelley fairly recently. About a month ago, I was listening to another podcast. I was listening to Rick Archer's podcast, Buddha at the Gas Pump where he interviews people that have gone through a powerful spiritual awakening. And he's done a couple of hundred of these. And I've listened to, to, I would say, probably 30 or 40 over the last two or three years. And, uh, you know, some of them don't do much for me. Some of them are a little heady for me, where I feel like people are a little too talking about it instead of being it and living it. But sometimes... He interviews somebody and the person he's interviewing and the conversation is really juicy and alive and delightful. And that's how I felt when I was listening to Rick interview Shelley. And uh, another reason that I'm excited about interviewing Shelley today is that um, Shelley comes from a lot of trauma in her life. Uh, and I'll let her tell you the story, but I know a lot of my listeners have had families of origins that have been really tough or life experiences that have been really tough physically, sexually, emotionally, mentally, financially. And um, I was really inspired by Shelley's resilience and compassion, which I know has a lot to do with where she came from. So uh, Shelley, welcome to the conversation. Oh, thank you, David. Um, real pleasure to be here with you. Great. So I'm going to read 
to the listeners the brief bio you gave me, and then we'll get right into it. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Shelly Ray, a Reiki master for 15 plus years, trained to the master level in many other energy modalities, and is certified in numerous body-centered therapies. Her work in this field became full-time in the year 2000. Sexually abused as a child, followed by 27 years of drugs, alcohol, and bouts of depression brought her to death's door in 1997. With the help of 12-step recovery groups and many spiritual paths, in August of 2008, Shelley Ray awakened. Her first book, Suffering, A Path of Awakening, Dissolving the Pain of Incest, Abuse, Addiction, and Depression, after going worldwide, opened a portal to support and guide many people in their awakening process. Her second book, Enlightenment, Tips to Reveal Your Divine Nature, has become a valuable tool to many who are seeking embodied awakening. While supporting others, Shelley Ray's fiery path to awakening allows a non-judgmental, gentle pointing to the truth of who they really are from the depth of her own realization. She balances deep compassion with the steady and potent awareness that you are not, in your essential self, the sufferer. So welcome again, Shelley. Thank you. Yes, so so good to be here and... I'm, I'm excited about what we might uh, what we might disclose and discover today, together today. Me too. So, um, just going back to some earlier comments I made, um, what really struck me when I was getting to know you through your interview with Rick was I had a feeling that you were really just being yourself, just living, and that you weren't thinking about awakening, but you were just being, just being awake, and that you were comfortable with being a spiritual being, having a human experience, having a mind, having a heart, having a body, having a belly, and that uh, you really had gotten to a point where you had made peace with being an infinite spiritual being, having a human experience, and uh, I want to check that out, that intuition out with you, if that's, if that is your experience these days. Yes, the when, when I had my awakening, um, and and again, it, it, I've mentioned it to many people. It was like a thud, you know, really just landing here in my body for the first time when I had that experience on August first in two thousand and eight. Uh, what happened for me was there was a surrender to um, to the natural flow of life through this form, that there was no longer any idea of me. Um, the the seeker died in that moment, and there was there was no longer anything beyond me that was needed. I there was a, such a sense of I am complete, I am whole. This is it. And uh, it released a lot of anchors to the past. Uh, it released ideas about something in the future. And it completely created uh, an opening for uh, the effortlessness of being uh, that I, 
that I experience. I mean, there's really, there's no, nothing here really to struggle with. And, um, and it's, it's, you know, it's not an idea. It's really just, um, I am an opening for life to move through. I, I like to call it lifing. I am lifing. And it's really quite arrogant for me to have some idea that I might know what's better for life than life herself. So following the impulse of life that so softly guides me and comes through me now rather than from me is just uh, the most natural seeming for me in my experience, uh, the most natural way for us to be. It seems to be the, the, the natural design well, you know, for me, my sense of you is it's even beyond what you said. It's even beyond that it's through you. I get that you have had experiences of that. But my sense is what I was pointing out was even more profound. My sense is, is that a lot of times it's beyond through you. It's more like as you. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there's no separation. Right. And... Yep. Uh, you know, that's what I really got. And that, I think, is our point of connection that we, uh, you know, whatever branches our lineages have taken, I sense that we have a similar core non-dual root that at the same time uh, honors uh, uniqueness and individuality and humanness in all its ways as um as aspects of the one. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Okay, so I want to give you a lot of time here in the beginning to just kind of be like a jazz musician and take the conversation where you'd like to. I would love it if you would just, as you're guided, just tell your story uh, in the context of you know the purpose of this conversation, but just take us back as far as you want to take us back and bring us up to the moment in this time-space continuum where the awakening popped in. And uh, then either before or after that, I'd like you to define what you mean when you say, I awakened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so the, the, we'll go back to somewhat the beginning. I was, I was nine years old when the sexual abuse with my father began, and that continued until I was 14 years old. And, and the only reason I stopped at 14 was because I, you know, I told my mother about it. Um, but at nine years old, you know, as far as I remember, there was always the physical abuse. My father was a um, a pretty violent alcoholic and, um, you know, just had explosive reactions to situations. And so when the sexual abuse began, I began self-medicating. My, my desire was to not feel what I was feeling. Life felt too big and too loud and everything was just super stimulating to me. I was so sensitive and that just put me over, over the top. And I couldn't, I couldn't be here, and I didn't know how to leave. And so I started self-medicating. And 
God knows how I discovered huffing gas, but when I was nine years old, I would tie a rag around the end of my baton and dip it in the, uh, the gasoline from the lawnmower and, and, you know, cut my hands around it and just breathe it in. And um, by the time I was 10, I was smoking cigarettes and uh, stealing alcohol from my parents' liquor cabinet and, you know, quickly accelerated to um, drugs when I was 12, smoking pot, um, uh, many, you know, just trying many, many things. I did opium and laced joints with paragoric. I don't know how I got my hands on that. It was in the medicine cabinet, I guess. Um, and, you know, so basically whatever I could get my hands on, and somehow I managed to get my hands on a lot of things. And by the time I was a teenager, I was drinking daily and um, found cocaine by the time I was 18, and that became an 18-year habit. Um, somewhere in there, you know, I just, I, life just didn't seem fair to me. I was so identified with the abused one and um, blamed my father and blamed my past for the dysfunction of my life. Um, got married when I was 25, had a couple of kids. Uh, I have a couple of beautiful adult children and um, they're very well balanced and um uh, rather incredibly, you know, s stable, beautiful lives coming from <laughs> um, a bit of a messy alcoholic mother. So anyway, um, so I got married. Um, my husband and I divorced about six years after we got married. And as um, soon as the divorce happened, that was when uh, the acceleration, you know, prior to that, I, I still had some ability to control the drug and alcohol abuse. Uh, but after my husband and I divorced, uh, we had shared custody and the kids would be with me for a week and they'd be with him for a week. Uh, while they were with, with me, it was still kind of controlling my drug and alcohol use. And when uh, they were with their father, it was out of control. And I began smoke, actually smoking crack and um, that took me to my knees. After about two and a half years, I had what was uh, called a, um, a cocaine coma. I had a total out-of-body experience and saw my body, um, what I thought my body had died, and um, didn't know how to get back into the form. And something happened, you know, something happened, like a portal opened, and it was time for me to enter the body again, and I landed. And and so that was the beginning of the end of um, drug abuse. And then, of course, the drug alcohol <laughs> uh, had its way with me for um, for another three years. So, you know, the, the drugs were always uh, kind of my second choice. Alcohol was what made it a good idea to do something else. So alcohol was always the uh, the staple in my in my um, drug addiction. And when I woke up in a hospital in June of 1997 and had been there for four days, not knowing why I was there, that began uh, the beginning of really recovery. Um, it still took me six months to stop drinking, but. Something happened in that hospital. I woke up. I had had a suicide attempt in an alcohol blackout where I had swallowed all the pills in my house and um, 
I was already in an alcohol blackout when I swallowed all the pills and dragging my, my blanket and in my pajamas out into the railroad tracks out in the woods, I, I laid down to die. And somehow someone discovered me at two o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday night or a Wednesday morning, however you want to look at it. And the paramedics came and rushed me to the hospital and stump, stomach was pumped and um, I was in progressive care for a couple of days and then in the hospital for a couple of days before they sent me up to um, the uh, psych ward and the spin dry, what they call it in the 12-step programs. And I was there for five days in a wheelchair with gout so bad that um, I couldn't even put my feet down toward the floor. I was very sick, literally um, dying, you know, swollen liver, overweight, um, bleeding ulcers, uh, dysfunctional thyroid, bones crumbling. I mean, um, a lot of things that are labeled as uh, incurable. And so what happened was uh, I found my way to Alcoholics Anonymous. I had to go to meetings while I was in the hospital. And, um, and somehow, miraculously, uh, found a really strict and loving sponsor who held my hand and took me through um, took me through the eye of the needle really of getting sober I couldn't have done it without someone as strict and uh, loving as she was she held my hand she pushed me she wouldn't let me get away with anything and she supported me as 27 years of feelings were unleashed in my body. Um, I had anesthetized all of the, the pain of um, you know, being abused as a child and all of the pain of turning the abuse on myself um, into you know, my teen and adult years. So when, um, when recovery really set in, I guess it was about a year sober before I decided that I probably would not drink again um, to that point, I wasn't sure that I even wanted to stop drinking, but days were adding up and, um, and I was managing to stay sober and things began shifting. Um, I, I began meditating and, um, praying and looking for some sort of a sign that there was something, there was something more to this very confusing and empty life that I was living. I didn't really believe in God. I was still very angry. If 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 there was such a God, I was I, I had words <laughs> that uh, that wanted to be spoken to it. And you know, my seeking actually began in 1986. I joined a program called LifeSpring. And it's much like Est, I guess. I never did Est, but I've heard that they, they were similar. And, you know, I, st I still wasn't sober, but it, it activated something in me that, that, that there was a possibility that there might be something more. And that was always kind of humming in, my, in the background of my awareness. And so when I got sober, I began meditating I began praying by the strict urgence of my, my sponsor, and I felt like a fake. I felt silly doing it because I didn't believe in anything. 
and I began having experiences. I began having um, expanded state awarenesses, kind of, you know, just consciousness opening up and realizing that um, I am it and um, had a portal open um, one evening as I had my face buried in the comforter and was just longing for some sort of sign, guidance, what's it all about, why are we here, what does, you know, what is the, the sense of all of this suffering, and, and something opened up, and I could see that um, it, there were infinite universes, and all of a sudden, everything, there was an awareness of how it all was interconnected, and it was all of the one, and it all made sense. And I was so excited and so filled with joy, and I couldn't wait to to share, you know, this this realization with everyone. And then, boom, the the portal closed, and and I was just sitting there, not being able to recall any of it, anything that I had cognitively uh, understood in that state. So um, it wasn't. It wasn't meant for the mind, and um, it was really uh, the beginning of um, an excitement that was fueling uh, the spiritual paths that that I was launched that I was launched on from that experience in early sobriety. Probably, um, oh, I would say early 1998 that I had that experience. And then an angel, I had um, contact with an angel and um, that brought things to another level. Um, He was uh, a very um, powerful ally in the first two years of my sobriety. I still wasn't certain for the first year that I wasn't going to kill myself. And, um, And his presence changed everything um from there i you know i just became a voracious seeker i was uh looking for um enlightenment and i didn't even know what that meant i i just wanted to be free from the drama that seemed to be running my life i didn't know how to um i didn't I didn't realize at the time that I was identified with it. I didn't know how to be free from it. And, you know, with all the, the years of work that I did and 12 step, 12-step recovery and, and other programs and, you know, support groups for uh, incest survivors and PTSD and all the things that I was labeled with, OCD and ADD and um, <laughs> just getting a lot of support and, and doing a lot of work in a lot of areas um, I had done. A great deal of healing and still not here, still not knowing why I was here, still had this backup plan of if it gets bad enough, I, I, can, always, I can always commit suicide, I can always leave this life. And so that was always a part of, um, you know, this dance that I was doing. Um, I had an experience in meditation one day where, um, and again, this was in early sobriety, probably the early, early on in 1998, where I just, I, I seemed to just pop into another realm where I wasn't aware of the body. I wasn't aware of 
form. And I had this, this remembering, I guess I would call it. It was a sense of my father and I came to do this dance of um, uh, villain and victim for a purpose. We had agreed upon it. And when I came back into um, you know, present form awareness, I was, there were, there were a lot of things that were going on in me. I was angry <laughs> um, because I couldn't undo what I had just remembered. I couldn't unremember it. And I was, um, I, f- I felt confused by it. I thought, oh, well, can I change my mind? What did I agree upon? Why? So there was a lot, there was a lot that got activated with that, but there was also a sense of um, an energetic release beginning to happen where forgiveness was able to begin leaking in. And, and that was the beginning of the um, disidentification with the victim. And, um, and of course, you know, in, in my life now, I can see that all of that had a great purpose um, and not to say that you know that there aren't other ways to develop our skills but um, the sensitivity that I have when I'm working with people was developed as a young girl when I could you know when every bit of my body every cell in my being was activated with sensitivity feeling and hearing my father coming from the other side of the house toward my bedroom at night and and so that, you know, that sensitivity was developed from that young, young experience. And um, the compassion, the level of compassion and um, love that I feel uh, and total non-judgment that I feel when I'm working with people all came from uh, what I've come through. I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing in my history that... Um, that is any better or worse than anyone else's trauma. (laughs) And I have no fear of holding someone's hand and going with them into the darkest depths of, of their, uh, you know, their lives, their challenges, their, their blind spots, their wounds. So all of that, all of that has um, created the uh, the way that I it, it's I mean it's just been the very vehicle to arrive where I'm at now doing the work that I do and I'll just backtrack a little bit to um, you know to the awakening experience that I had that I've already mentioned and we'll talk a little bit more about that later I guess but when I when I landed when I had that awakening experience there was um, you know, in the very timeless, eternal now, I mean, there was no sense of time and space at all. I was all of it. I had a complete flash before my eyes my entire life. I could see it, um, the whole thing, every piece of it, and and every single experience was infused with this divine light i mean it was just magical like the abuse the 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 beatings the losses the victories the loves the joys the losses every single bit, piece of it 
um, was magically and intricately connected, creating this divine mosaic that brought me to this most pristine moment in my life of awakening. And I could see that if one tiny piece, if one thing was out of place in that um, divine design, none of it would have worked and it would have affected, I could see how it would have affected the whole world. And so in that moment, when, um, you know, when that experience, uh, when it came through the other side of that experience, there was a sense of complete release of judgment or um, idea that something is going wrong or is bad or is um, out of place in this, this dance of life that we're doing. There was a sense of it all has purpose, it all has place. I don't know what it is, but what I do know is that life doesn't make mistakes and that, um, that every bit of it has its purpose. And my, my greatest sense, my deepest sense is that it's to, it's to really bring us, bring us back online, to open our hearts, to, uh, to serve and support and, uh, connect with, um, you know, our, our, our most magical, exquisite selves. I mean, it's all, <laughs> it's all just such a beautiful divine dance. It's, I, uh, you know, I'm challenged to put words to, to what it is that, you know, to what it is that I experience in life today. So, um, I'm not quite sure where else to go with this. Maybe you have some questions, David, that, that, um, that you'd like, or places that you'd like me to expand and okay. explore with you a bit more. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you mm-hmm. very much. I was right there with you the whole time. Um, yeah, there's a couple places I'd like to take this. One is, um, I want to get into what you're meaning when you talk about awakening and I want to get into it because I think, you know, clarity of definition is important in general, but I want to get into it specifically because I know for people that are still very embedded in an egoic state of consciousness, when they imagine awakening, very often they're imagining something that I would call a peak experience mm-hmm. that can last anywhere between minutes and, in my experience, months. Mm-hmm. And that isn't what I mean when I talk about awakening. And I don't think that's what you're meaning either. Mm-hmm. And I thought maybe you could speak to, obviously we can't, Words can only go so far in terms of communicating, but I thought it might be useful for you to talk about your understanding of awakening and maybe contrasting that with peak experiences so that people that are listening that, uh, there's some people listening, I think, that would be served by that conversation. And then I have lots of questions kind of going back in your story uh, 
asking you some questions uh, kind of from the, the human side of that journey. So go ahead. Okay, yeah, sure. So I've had many, many spontaneous peak awarenesses, um, expanded states of consciousness is what I like to call them. And um, so when I had that awakening on August 1st of 2008, I, I had, you know, with the, what I'll, I'll call the landing, it was like a thud in the body, with that landing, I also had this sense of kind of looking over my shoulder, wondering when it was going to go away, because they always go away. <laughs> And um, so there was a little bit of, oh, what if this goes away? What if this really isn't it? And, and I was in a peak experience for about three and a half months where I was just in total bliss. Um, you know, I'd get the giggles from the silliest things. And, um, you know, my heart was just what it felt like was my heart was just bubbling over uh, with just the enthusiasm of this dance that we're doing here. And. None of that really went away. I think that what happened was I adjusted to it and it became the new normal, this frequency, this higher vibrational state that I seem to be um, vibrating at. And, and with that, um, so there, it wasn't anything like what my mind had told me awakening might be. Um, I had this thought that enlightenment might be, um, I don't know what I thought, just um, burst into a ball of light maybe, or be able to walk on water or, you know, fireworks or something that would not, that would not end. But it's really, it's quite normal. It's very um, kind of ordinary. And what I can say about awakening is that something, something, got turned around. It was like I was living upside down and something got right side up. And there was a way of no longer um, identifying with any of the drama of life. And all of that just fell away. And what happened was... Um, I guess, you know, the, the way I like to say it is that there's a sense of being in the world and not of it. It doesn't have its tentacles in me anymore. There's a way of experiencing it and seeing it and allowing it without any need um, for it to be any different. And so when I spoke before, when I said before that there's a sense of something coming through me rather than from me, now I'm able to respond to life from an open place of knowing that I am this, rather than reacting to life from a contracted uh, belief or, or you know, some identification with a should or, or something from my past. So it's, there's, a sense of, um, there's a sense of being freed of uh, anything needing to be any different, including... Um, myself. So if I, if I, um, you know, I'm still, <laughs> I'm still here as, as a human being, I'm still here in this, this physical form, and, and I still experience emotions, although, um, you know, that has, um, that too has um, 
softened. And I mean, I just don't react emotionally to things that I used to react to. So, so I still feel sadness and I still feel joy and I still get angry once in a while. And the difference between all of these um, feelings that come through me is I don't have a sense. There's no judge that comes in and criticizes it. It's like a breeze is now will blow through and and then be gone. And so there's no sense of, oh, that was bad, that was good, that was right, that was wrong. It just, you know, it was an experience and, and it was clean. Um, I say it was clean because there was nothing resisting it. So it didn't create any kind of um, disharmony or wreckage in its wake. Well, I'm really glad that um, I asked you that question because you you got right at what I wanted to get at because um, I know that is a common confusion for many people. And uh, I really appreciate you going into that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I yeah. want to take you back and kind of come through some of your past again, but focus a little bit more on kind of down and dirty creaturehood reality, if that's okay. Sure, sure. <laughs> So uh, where were you born? Where was your family of origin? Okay, I was born in St. Petersburg, Florida. And um, I grew up, well, we did a short stint in California when I was, I think, five. But for the most part, you know, we, we moved we moved a lot. You know, my, because of my father's... Um, uh, because of, of the way he moved in the world, uh, because of his history, uh, we, we moved around a lot. He didn't let us get too close or stay connected with family um, at all. So it, it kind of kept, it kept him protected in the way that he was moving by not staying anywhere too long. I mean, we moved from, from Florida uh, to Vermont and then back to Florida, and then back to Vermont. And I guess I was, uh, let's see, nine years old when we moved up north and stayed up north, yes. And I was nine years old, and that was when the abuse began, the sexual abuse. What year were you born in? Oh, 1960. Okay. Yep. And then do you have brothers and sisters? I do. I've got one older brother, a younger sister, and, and the youngest of four is a um, is my other brother <laughs> now did did you did did any of them including your mother know what was going on then and if not um when did when did this all come out well um no one knew about it um my sister whom i shared a room with um many times in the many houses that we lived in i think on some level she she knew but she blocked it out um, she had, uh, you know, she had a lot of, a lot of, uh, emotional kind of drama. And, and I think that even if she didn't know consciously, um, she was in the room when a lot of the abuse happened. And one of the things that I, I used to get threatened with by my father was if you make any noise, it'll wake your sister and I'll have to do it with her too. And wow. yeah, so, wow. so I was, you know, I was, um, you know, I was very protective of the younger ones. My brother, my older brother, uh, and myself, uh, we were very protective of the two younger ones. And um, I, you know, I got really good 
at swallowing my pain and my anger and uh, my fear. And um, that was that was quite silent. <laughs> so um, when I was 14 years old, <laughs> I'll just you know share what ha- happened. I've I was drinking a lot, I was using a lot of drugs, and I was doing a lot of uh, very illegal things. Um, I got caught shoplifting. I was doing my Christmas shoplifting in a a department store. And, um, you know, I was approached by store security, and my mother was grocery shopping in the store next door. And they said, you know, we've got you on camera, we know that you've taken some things, some jewelry, and... um, you know, took me back into the office and brought my mother in and, you know, I'm emptying my pockets and you know, she was just sliding down the wall with horror because at that point I, you know, she was just tired of me. I was a, I was a bad kid, you know, in, in, in her book, uh, or dysfunctional, you know, I got caught smoking pot in school. I was smoking cigarettes and getting caught over and over and drinking and getting caught over and over and skipping school and getting caught and thumbing and getting caught. And, you know, so she was, she was pretty worn out. And at that point, um, the, uh, they wanted to, um, I was on, um, probation. I had a curfew with, you know, the local police department and, um, there was some juvie, some juvenile, um, house restriction that I was, I was on. And, um, and so my mother, you know, had a conversation with me and was ready to send me to, um, um, some juvenile school, some center, some detention center. And, um, at that point, um, I just didn't care what happened anymore. I didn't care. So all the threats that my father had used to keep me silent for five years, it no longer mattered. I didn't care if he killed all of us. I didn't care if um, if the family uh, fell apart and um, and we all got put in foster homes. I mean, these were some of the threats. I, I didn't care if any of that happened anymore. So I, my father was off on a business trip, and um, I sat my mother down, and I said, I just have to tell you. And, and so I, you know, I outed my father at that point. Of course, she didn't believe me at first because of my history, you know. Shelly, the drama queen, and creating all kinds of disturbances in everybody's world. <laughs> and, um, and so she contacted my father, and he came home, and the three of us were sitting down and talking, um, and, and he was denying it. And I was just sitting there. My whole body, it was like having a shamanic experience. I don't know if it was <clears throat> fear, if it was just a release of years of... Um, holding back emotions. And I'm telling you, there must have been fire coming out of my eyes as I was making eye contact with my father. And I said, um, you have to tell the truth. You have to tell the truth here. And, um, and he, he broke down and started crying and and admitted to everything. Wow. Yeah. And so at that point, you know, my mother, had had two suicide attempts and you know that's all it, all the <laughs> story around all of this the drama um is in my first book and so she had fear of um you know divorcing my father and not and being seen as a as an unfit mother because of her history 
and the fear of those four kids going into foster homes. And, and so she, you know, she kind of came at it from another angle. We can fix your father. We can get him help. And, um, and so that, you know, and he promised to get help and, and the help never happened. Um, and I moved out at an early age and, yeah, I think I was 16 when I started staying with my boyfriend and got my first apartment when I was 17 and, um, and just wasn't home much, um, you know, as much as possible. And, and he stopped, you know, he did stop abusing me. And, um, but at that point, you know, at that point I had already turned the abuse on myself. I was, um, I was already, uh, addicted to drugs and alcohol and um how were you financially supporting that habit as you got into your teen years and 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 beyond mm. i was working i was working as a bartender and a waitress and skimming skimming the till in a lot of places okay so um you know i was stealing <laughs> and um and, you know, living, living in a tiny little studio apartment, well, I had a two room apartment at another time. Um, you know, my overhead was pretty, pretty minimal. I had a, a motorcycle that I would drive in the summer and I'd sell it and buy a car in the winter and sell the car in the winter and get another motorcycle. And, um, that was pretty much how I lived. Uh, and then I got into, uh, you know, and my adult years, I got into credit card debt. I was almost $40,000 in debt because I was using, you know, was it, using as much of my cash flow as, as I could, um, and, and still be able to support myself and the kids. And, and then going into debt in my credit cards, um, through cash advances at the bank to be able to pay for crack cocaine and alcohol. I see. Yeah. Now, at what point in your journey did you have in your conscious mind a sense that you that maybe there was more to the story that you were on some you were playing some bigger game that you were on some spiritual journey? When did that start to register into the conscious mind as a possibility? That didn't really began seeping into my awareness until I got sober and it really hit home when I had that, that expanded state consciousness experience where I had this remembering that my father and I had chosen to come do this, uh, right. This relationship in this, in this manner. And what year was that? That was in early 1998, which is also when I had my first Reiki initiation, Reiki 1. And um, I had an incredible experience during that where, you know, my hands were like on fire. It felt like my feet weren't quite touching the ground. And I had this feeling of love in my heart like I'd never experienced before. And I went, oh, dear, wow, I finally know what I want to be when I grow up. And so that was, you know, that was the beginning of my um my journey to healing and um, it really kicked the doors open to the floodgates of, uh, of emotion that I had um, repressed you know, right. at that point for my whole life. So I cried for six months after that first <laughs> initiation 
Um, but I couldn't wait to get to my Reiki 2 class because I knew on some level in my belly that this is just what is needed. This is just what this body and this soul and this spirit is needing in this moment. And, um, and again, you know, with this incredible appetite, I went fast forward on uh, this journey of discovery getting as many initiations as I could, Reiki 2, and then I went to the Reiki master practitioner and then the master teacher level and and then, you know, to the master level and many other energy modalities. Just had to know what what is this that um, that I've been shielded from my whole life. That's that, not, oh, go ahead. And that was, you know, that was actually, um, it, it was remarkable. I was like a billboard of... Uh, I was like the beer billboard for, for miracles because um, all these things that I had that were supposedly incurable, one after the other, I dropped all the pharmaceuticals and by you know probably March of 98, I wasn't taking anything anymore against the uh, great concern of my doctors. I, I dropped everything and, um, and everything began healing. I had, you know, this... Uh, incredible pain in my left foot and I just remember inside of uh, about a year and a half after my Reiki journey began I always had pain in that foot I and I had to be careful how I stepped on it I just remember I'd been sitting in meditation on a beach in Florida and I stood up I was on vacation I stood up and stretched and kind of rolled up onto the balls on my feet, prepared for the pain in the left foot that always, always came when I put too much pressure on it. And there was no pain. And I went, what? And I was just hitting my foot on the ground going, oh, wow, look at that. The pain is gone. It's healed. And, um, and, and I, you know, just had that same sort of experience with all the other things that had been going on in my body, the dysfunctional thyroid, haven't been on medication now for that for 17 years, um, um, degenerative disc disease, all the pain in, in my neck and my lower back has gone away. And of course the bleeding ulcers. I mean, all of, all of, all of the body dysfunction has healed itself through, you know, working with this energy and, and of course giving up drugs and alcohol and, and some diet change. Um, I think there'd be a good segue to ask you uh, who have been, you know, on the physical plane, who have been some of your major mentors, teachers, teachings, uh, major spiritual influences other than your encounter with the Reiki lineage. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So um, Paramhansa Yogananda, uh, and the Self-Realization Fellowship teachings. Uh, that was my path for about seven years. And uh, he, I considered him my heart guru. And um, Eckhart Tolle, mm -hmm. <laughs> I just fell in love with him after I read The Power of Now. And of course I did, uh, watched all of the, the interviews with Oprah and then joined, uh, became a member of the Eckhart Tolle TV for a period of time and watched all of his, his talks and meditations. And, um, so probably Yogananda and Eckhart Tolle were, were my two, I would call, I would call them my, my two kind of 
most solid teachers, gurus. Uh, but I had, you know, the Course of Miracles. Uh, I studied that for years, and it never made sense to me. And and all these other teachings, Krishnamurti and Ramana and all these other paths that I, I touched into and books that I read and DVDs and um, events that I attended, some of it seemed so contradictory and some of it didn't make any sense to me at all. If that's true, then why this? And what happened when um, after I had my, my awakening, um, all of a sudden there was, there was, again, you know, being having this this whole new way of seeing and being, it all made sense to me. All of a sudden I was able to read A Course in Miracles and understand it. <laughs> and um, I don't know, it was like the, the resistance or the contraction or the, the mental realm the, that I was living in that was trying to figure everything out. When that hard wire got cut, there was a, a way of experiencing it and understanding it rather than thinking and trying to figure it out. Right. Can you speak at all about your journey of uh, healing in the area of uh, intimate relationships? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, Well, you know, there were just some things that I needed to honor as um, as the healing was happening. So some of the things that came to me through um, you know through guidance, through things that I read, through working with a, a therapist. Um, actually, I worked with a, a therapist for eight years before I got sober, and then four years into sobriety, and and she was quite helpful, um, giving little pointers here and there, ways to to take care of myself as, you know, these little girl wounds were coming up. So, um, you know, in, in relationship, if one of the things that I, uh, had to do was have trust and good communication with my partner and honor what was going on for me in the moment. If we're in an act of, you know, sexual intimacy and this little girl aspect comes up and, and she's scared, you know, what I needed to do was honor that and speak it. All of a sudden, I'm feeling scared. I need to just, can we just slow down and stop? Can you just hold me for a moment? Whatever it is, you know, to really honor the truth of my being and hold that little girl that um, that is all, all of a sudden present and, and not wanting to move forward or feeling frozen or scared or whatever. And so all of these um, these ways of honoring kind of the... Um, No, I don't even really, I, I don't know what everything that comes up to use as a word feels like a bit of a harsh label. So all of the, the, the little girl places that were shut off and repressed and were not allowed to be here, I had to um, trust that, uh, that it, her presence here had purpose and allow, allow her to be here in a way that, um, you know, was honoring kind of her truth too 
I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah, okay. Yeah, good. Yeah. So, so what happened as I was doing that, um, there was more and more of me online and less and less <clears throat> of this wounded little girl showing up because I was, you know, the feeling it is, is the healing of it. And the natural outcome of healing, of course, is integration. <clears throat> and so I was, I was feeling her and, and allowing her to be here and speaking about it and, um, really honoring and trusting the the flow of uh, of life in that moment, and I recall. <clears throat> so after after awakening, it doesn't mean that um, just because you're now um, awake, it doesn't mean that there aren't still places that um, that are in need of healing. So. Um, it's wonderful that you were able to allow and attract uh, a conscious partner or more than one conscious partner so that you would have a safe and focused space for for this to heal. Yes, yes. Yeah, I've been blessed by, um, yeah, some beautiful beings who, who really honored and um wanted to be a part of, of that healing of, of, you know, the wounds of the past. Did you find that as you healed emotionally that your body and your energy flow came back online by itself? Or did you find that you had to do some more focused physical and etheric type practices to, to recover that physical and energetic flow through the body? It seemed to resolve itself. I think that, you know, well, you know, with the Reiki, I would put my hands on the lower chakras and just send a lot of love and light in there without anything needing to be any different. Yeah. And um, I think that, you know, I have a sense that that helped balance energetic dysfunction in my body and my, my, my light body in a lot of ways um, that really kind of opened the pathway and, and accelerated the healing. And uh, I've had three kundalini awakenings. And after the first kundalini awakening, the I seemed, I don't know, it was just all of a sudden I had access to uh, a life force energy that I wasn't, I wasn't, able to access before I didn't even know that it was there there was there was a landing kind of and center and in my power in a healthy way being able to speak my truth and um, uh, a, a stronger connection with you know my kind of my roots and the mother mother earth uh, and that happened that actually happened my first Kundalini awakening happening happened in April of 2008 so that was before the, uh, you know, the, the right. landing, right. <laughs> the landing in August of that same year. So you had one prior and then two later. And then two later, one in June of 2010 and one in March of 2011. Now, by that time, had you been practicing good lifestyle habits and nutrition long enough so that you're nervous system was in good shape to handle that much juice? Yes. I, you know, I, and I didn't, I didn't know that I was doing things in my kind of my, 
organic way of being here, here in the world that would activate kundalini. I've never done a kundalini yoga class. I'd never had some idea of awakening kundalini, but it awakened spontaneously. And, you know, thank goodness at that point, I, when the first one happened in April of 2008, I had 11 years of sobriety and healthy, clean, healthy diet. At that point, I had been a vegan for um, three years and off of coffee and sugar and all the things that, um, you know, that caused energetic um, disharmony in my body. Um, and, um, and prior to that, a vegetarian for about seven years. And so I think that, you know, between the energy work that I had, all the in energy initiations I had, had received and all the energy work I'd been doing for all these years, I think it helped to um, better receive the kundalini as it, as it was unleashed in my body. Uh, I still didn't know that it wouldn't kill me <laughs> because it was intense. All three times it was extremely, extremely difficult and intense. And coming to the other side of, you know, this fire ripping through my body, I was, I was in bliss. Um, People who came and helped me and, and sat in my field and fed me and took care of me um, would go into, um, <laughs> into like one person went into a state of bliss for three days when, uh, when he came and, and helped me out. And another woman had um, like the whole day of just bubbles, bubbles of bliss. And so um, the energy was intense and I didn't... Um, really start getting some help or looking for some guidance until the third one in March of 2011 when uh, I thought, well, <laughs> I don't know if, if I'll survive another one. Perhaps it's time to talk to an expert and see if I can find out how to be with this energy so that um, right. I don't hurt myself. And fortunately, maybe you had a body type that was earthier and maybe could ground some of this energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, yeah. That's great. Well, let's shift gears again and kind of um, come more into present time. Uh, you live in Oregon now? I do, yes, in Ashland, Oregon. Are you part of any type of uh, intentional community or it's very sort of uh, ad hoc? or what, What's your life like now? Yes, um, well, the, the whole community here is like an intentional community. Um, I, you know, I was a, a, a participant, a mentor for about a year and a participant in a community called Waking Down in Mutuality. And we met here. They still meet in Ashland. And I was part of that community for five years. And it, it was just what I needed. It helped me through the fire of awakening. And it was good to have this community and connection with people when I was going through the crazies of Kundalini experience to awakening so that april of 2008 to august of 2008 and then the messiness on the other side of awakening <laughs> um it was good to have to have that community to support me through um through the awakening challenges and um it's probably been let's see i'm gonna guess probably been three years since I've been involved with that community, I still have dear friends in, who are still involved in it. But I don't sit in 
any specific circle. I give satsang once a month here in Ashland at a community center called uh, The Haven. And, you know, my my community is really just my dear friends. We get together and... Um, what do you like to do? I... I like to be out in nature. You know, I've got a kayak. I love paddling. Uh, I ride my bike. I like walking, hiking, and the trails. Um, you have and a just, dog? just pardon me. Do you have a dog? I don't. No, yeah. I, I don't have any pets. I had two cats, and I speak about them in my book. Tigger, I think, was uh, part of the catalyst for my awakening. And um, he was almost eighteen when he passed. And then uh, his sister Punky, she passed three years later. So, and I have, you know, as much as I love animals, I'd love to get another cat, but I'm traveling so much right now and working so many hours that it doesn't seem fair <laughs> to either of us uh, yet. So we'll see. Could you talk a little bit about the forms that your current work takes so that the listeners who feel moved to contact you have some idea of the different forms of participation that are possible? Yes, yes. I, uh, I sit with people in person, of course, and I sit with people on the computer via Skype. And, and some people don't have Skype, and so I sit with them on the phone. My preference, if it's available, is Skype. There's something about body language and connecting visually with the other that really deepens our time together. So what I do is I support people uh, in their awakening process, wherever they think they are on the journey. I like to hold space and guide and point and, um, and you know, bring in little nuggets here and there that, that might open their perspective to seeing something in a little bit of a broader way and, and, it's you know it's remarkable to see how fast disidentification happens when, when, when the 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 you know when their the panoramic view <laughs> has been opened up to them, it right. it just happens so quickly. So so I work with people in that way. I also work with people energetically. So a lot of my locals come in for what they call the tea in the table. Um, and we'll sit down and we'll have tea. We have a tea talk. Um, and that might last for 45 minutes or an hour. And then they hop on the table, the massage table, and receive some energy work. And um, I do energy work remotely. I work with some people on the East Coast. And I've got some clients in Europe um, where they schedule time with me. And, and um, you know, we might talk on the phone or we might talk on Skype for a little bit and then they just lie down and I do some remote energy work with them. I also do events. I travel around and, and, uh, it's, you know, it's satsang and, um, and more. <laughs> so there's some, there's some talking and there's some, um, support and reflection and, um, kind of the, the satsang f format. And then we, then we accelerate things a bit and we might do some dyad work or some breath work or a guided meditation. And, um, and then we always end it with the community coming together and uh, reflecting. Great. Yeah. What, do you not, what are you most excited about these days? Hmm. I am most excited about seeing how many people are waking up 
it is it nothing makes my heart smile bigger than to see the lights on <laughs> i know what you mean yeah and people just freed up from the drama of 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 life you know recognizing that uh, that it's the identification with uh, with the the one who suffers, or the identification with the one who is lost or confused, that is the very thing that um, is in the way of being able to move as the free being that they are, and to respond to life in a way that um, that doesn't uh, that doesn't cause or add to. Um, the challenge of the situation. I think one of the most challenging things for people is that before you can disidentify, you have to really, 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 really grok to what extent you're lost. Mm -hmm. To what extent you are entangled. Yes, yeah. And the idea that the you that you are that you are is not the real you, is a profound idea. Yes, yes, I love that, yes. And so that's, you know, that's what I work with people on, that, that little, that little, we tease that out. I call myself an unteacher, and so what I do is I help them release all the beliefs and the teachings and all the things that they have bought into that keeps them trapped in that mental construct, um, which is not who they are. Right. I think our work is very similar. I, My work, I sort of see as a, I mean, it's going on in, in, it's not as linear as I'm describing it, but it's like there's this part of the work, which is what you're describing, which is deconstructing the identification with ego. And then there's like um, being able to be with the, the nothingness with the infinite spaciousness, with the love, with the presence. And then there's like the question, well, now what? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, um, so I have a sense our work, I mean, just, um, I just get a sense from our connection and, and things that um, our, our work comes from a very similar place. Yes, yeah, it sounds like it, yeah. I've had a lot of people that um, that have worked with and people who have awakened and they look at me and they're like, just like what you said, now what? What, yeah. do, what do I do? I, it seems kind of boring now that I don't have all this drama going on and attachment to all of these um, um, identities. Um, now what? Well, you know, I love the I love the phrase that comes from Christian mysticism, the phrase to wait upon the Lord. Uh-huh. I love that where you where instead of doing something because you're avoiding the domination of doing nothing, right. You're in this ready, alert, expectant, allowing mode and yeah. then you allow true motion to show up in you and through you and as you. Yes, yes, perfectly. That's beautifully articulated, yes. That just takes a lot of consciousness and it takes a lot of faith. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, and I, you know, sometimes people say, well, you know, so if there's nothing to do, I could just lie down and just 
lay here forever? And I'm like, well, I, you could, but I have a pretty good sense that eventually life is going to come knocking at your door and say, get up. We've got something to do. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So um, as we move toward closing here, I want to turn the floor back over to you and just have you check in to see if there's anything you're being guided to say or share with our listeners as we wind down and any last words or thoughts and, and also uh, give out your contact information and then we'll, then we'll wrap it up. Okay. Okay. Um, let's see. What do I want to say? Well, there's, you know, we've, we've covered a lot and I just want to encourage people to, um, be open to the possibility. Just be open to the possibility that it can all change in, in a moment. And that the only thing that's really standing in the way of you recognizing what's here is an idea that, um, that it's got to be something else. And, you know, it's powerful, it's potent, it's beautiful, it's magical, and it is so ordinary. It is so our most natural, normal state. And when, when we can move from that place of mm, effortlessness, the effortlessness of being, then we're honoring all of life. We're honoring... Um, the the dysfunction, the disharmony, the the exquisite blossoming of um, joy and you know love expressions. We're honoring it all and moving from a place of of stillness and wholeness, without reacting to some old conditioned mind pattern, and just hold in your awareness that wow. You know, it's possible. It's possible to come from a, a, a relatively quiet and gentle life to awakening or, you know, the most difficult and challenging life to awakening. I, my sense is that the, the traumatic past is not so necessary anymore, that, you know, we were kind of the pioneers and blazing a path to accelerated awakening. I've got people who have had the most beautiful, soft lives um, waking up, and it's just magical. So I guess, uh, you know, being open to the, open to the possibility that um, we, ha we all have access to it. And I wonder, I wonder when, uh, um, not when, I guess I just want, you know, wonder, wondering in the moment. I love the, the energy of curiosity. What else is possible? I wonder what else is possible. So, and not needing to know, just letting go and letting life show you what else is possible. Kind of a releasing control, letting go of the reins and letting life show you and lead you. How can people get in touch with you? They can contact me through my website, and it's ShellyRay.com. That's S-H-E-L-L-E-E-R-A-E.com. And that's probably the best way to contact me. Uh, occasionally, people do call me. My phone number is on there. And uh, tell them that those people that are able to get a hold of me 
could go buy a lottery ticket because it's a very rare event. <laughs> okay. So ShellyRay.com, S-H-E-L-L-E-E-R-A-E.com. Right, yes. And I always um, am happy to receive emails too and just realize that I'm busy and I've received your message and I've received your email and I will respond. Um, but sometimes it might take two or three days. Shelly, I really appreciate our time together and uh, I'm glad you're here on the planet doing your thing and uh, very grateful for our time together and that our paths have crossed and uh, I look forward until the next time we speak on the physical plane and with that we'll close with love and peace. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you, David. Thank you to all the listeners, and thank you for the opportunity to share my heart here and my experiences here with you and, and everyone else. So, blessings. Welcome, friends. Dr. David here. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Shelley Ray. I know I did. I just am a big uh, Shelley Ray fan. I think she's the real deal. And uh, I'm glad I could share her with you, my listeners. And just a quick note of thanks to you. I'm actually recording this on uh, the 4th of July, Independence Day, and I just want you to know that freeing the body, freeing the soul for me is an expression of my spiritual sovereignty and my free choice to do what I can to share with you what has been so freely given to me through the years by all of my great teachers and friends. So, if you appreciate the quality of conversation that is taking place here at Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul, would you do me a personal favor this weekend, or whenever you're hearing this, go over to iTunes and give the show a five-star rating and a heartfelt review. And of course, you can always contact me at drdavid at cuttingedgedoc.com. That's Dr. David, D-R-D-A-V-I-D, at CuttingEdgeDoc.com. So until next, excuse me, so until next time, let's close with love and peace. Bye for now. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. To access all episodes, including show notes, go to CuttingEdgeDoc.com. That's CuttingEdgeDoc.com. Lastly, if you love today's show, you can support Dr. David, his work, and the show by going over to iTunes and giving a five-star rating and a heartfelt comment. Thank you again for joining us today and for your commitment to freeing the body, freeing the soul.